Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to over 180,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, welcome. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, how about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. Yep, you heard that right. Two months for free. My guest today is Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston, Texas. Christian, a regular AD contributor, is the author of several books about the Gulf states. His most recent, published this past December by Hearst, is Centers of Power in the Arab Gulf States. The Red Sea is on everyone's mind, and that's the topic of today's Arab Digest podcast. Great to have you back on the podcast, Christian. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Do you think that hitting the Houthis in Yemen is a sound strategic decision? Well, I think it would be a sound decision if there's a political end game in sight. And I'm not convinced that there is. I think the strikes on the Houthis fall into the category of being seen to be doing something given all the attacks on shipping in and around the Red Sea. And so I don't necessarily believe the strikes will deter the Houthis. I think we've already seen uh, attacks continue. Now, it may be that those carrying out the strikes will argue that if they can degrade the Houthis' ability to launch these uh, attacks on shipping, then that will be a uh, some sort of mission accomplished, if you will. But but again, so far, I don't think they will result in a strategic win in a sense that they will only embolden the Houthi movement even further and really link together the Yemen conflict with obviously the overspill from, from Gaza in a damaging way. So in, the, in, those, in, the, in, in that regard, I don't necessarily see that it is a sound decision. And... The ease, really, with which the UK came in behind the Americans and we engaged in some strikes of our own. I think there were only two fighter jets involved, but still we were there. What did you make of that? It's unfortunate because the UK is the penholder for Yemen at the United Nations Security Council. And so the UK, one would have hoped, would have had a more holistic view of looking at the wider political situation in Yemen, which is fragile, but nevertheless had been moving towards some sort of resolution of the conflict which began almost nine years ago, more than nine years ago, in fact, when the Houthis seized Sinai in September 2014. I think it's very interesting that the Saudis have urged restraint. There's no appetite in Riyadh for a new uh, campaign that could really re-escalate a conflict the Saudis have wanted to be rid of for some time. I think given the uh, political heat the Saudis and others took from the US and the UK, and especially from the Democratic Party in Congress, over the war in Yemen, if you think back especially to the Trump administration and all the congressional pressure, uh, 
Yeah, the sight of the uh, the US now bombing Yemen and the Saudis urging restraint is is really quite remarkable. A number of politicians in the US have have noted this fact over the last few days. I think uh, Ro Khanna, a representative Democrat representative from California, said that he would never have believed this to be possible on January twentieth, twenty twenty one, the day that Biden took office, and yet here we are. It's almost like a Alice in Wonderland looking glass uh, analogy. Yeah, here here we are. Yeah, that you're right, and Mokana's right too. It it is a it is quite a bizarre turnaround. Look, Christian, one of the assumptions that both Washington and London are making is that Iran is calling the shots, and the Houthis are doing what Tehran bids them to do. What do you make of that assumption? Because there are many commentators, not least uh, our own Helen Lackner, who just say that is simply not the case. Yeah, the Houthis are a local indigenous Yemeni group with political, economic and other motivations of their own. Now, obviously, they have taken Iranian support. That support has increased over the last uh, decade. To some extent, it's been a self-fulfilling prophecy, especially after the Saudis uh, led the Arab coalition in their intervention in 2015. But ultimately, the Houthis are an indigenous Yemeni political actor. They will take decisions that they see best for their own interests. And I think this will be a test case of the ability of Iran to exert any form of control over the Houthis in Yemen. And I suspect that we'll see that the real extent of Iran's control over the Houthis is far less than maybe those in the US or the UK or even Saudi Arabia would have believed, but which is something that analysts of Yemen have argued from the beginning, that the Houthis are an organic, indigenous actor, and they will take decisions for their own interests. And don't forget that since the beginning of the, the emergence of the Houthis in the early 2000s, one of their rallying cries has been death to America, death to Israel. I mean, this has been a a way for them finally to put that into action, at least by showing that they're the group that is standing up, uh, even as uh, other groups in Iran's so-called axis of resistance, notably Hezbollah, have been much more cautious. And so this is certainly an opportunity for the Houthis, and I think they've taken it, but again, for their interests, not for those of, of Iran. Yeah, the Americans uh, are saying that they've seized a vessel that shows that the Iranians are supplying the weapons that the Houthis are using to hit Red Sea shipping. Uh, well, we've known that for quite a long time. This isn't a new revelation. But providing the weapons and being able to turn around and say, you've got to stop this now, those are completely different uh, situations, aren't they? Yes, and I think other people have made a similar point that the U.S. provides Israel with a lot of support. And obviously, the U.S., there have been suggestions that the Biden administration is uncomfortable with some of Israel's decision-making in Gaza. But obviously, Israel is making those decisions for their own interests, just as the Houthis are in Yemen. And the ability of an external partner, even an important supplier of, of weaponry, to dictate those decisions, I think, is limited. And we shouldn't be surprised when it's limited in one instance, the U.S. and Israel, or in the other with uh, with Iran and the Houthis. Another stated position that is stated by Washington and London is that the retaliatory strikes are divorced from the Gaza war 
even as the Houthis make it abundantly clear, it is all about that war. That is, you have a ceasefire, we'll stop tossing drones and missiles at Red Sea shipping. Why do you think that the Americans and the British and other Western nations are taking such a stand? Because it flies in the face of the reality that we all know is there. Well, it does fly in the face of reality, and it's very difficult to really see why the US or the UK leadership would make those decisions, because the Houthis have said it repeatedly, that this is uh, linked inextricably to the war in Gaza, to the suffering of the Palestinian people, and to the fact that if nobody else is going to do anything to support the to support Gaza, they will. And so to try to argue otherwise, I think, is a disservice because it then makes it more difficult to deal with the root cause of the problem, which, of course, is the disruption to shipping in, in the Red Sea. It's only going to make the problem worse, especially if I think we see now a further emboldened Houthi movement uh, simply refusing to uh, to cow under the, the strikes that they're facing, unless, of course, the strikes do succeed in degrading the ability of the Houthis to, to launch such strikes. But I suspect that may not be the case. The Houthis, after all, have been at war in various guises now for more than a decade. And I think they probably have not only a very large stockpile of, of missiles and other weapons, many of which, as you say, were supplied by, by Iran, but they probably have the ability to, to conceal them too. So this does fly in the face of, uh, of common sense, and I think it makes it more difficult to try to find a resolution. Yeah, and, and, and another claim uh, it's made by the Israelis, of course, uh, in their war in Gaza is the self-defense claim. Rishi Sunak has made the same claim about the strikes in the Houthis. You know, I think, well, there may be some merit in the Israeli position, but is there any merit in what Sunak is claiming? I, I'm struggling to find the, what the self-defense in, in hitting the Houthis is for us here in the UK. Yes, I mean, obviously, Israel was attacked in the most horrifying, horrific way. On October 7th, more than 1,200 people were killed in Israel itself. We saw a scale of violence and rampage that was unseen since the, the Holocaust. And for Israel, we kind of brought back memories of all the pogroms in Eastern Europe in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And so you can understand, if not necessarily justify what has later happened, but you can certainly understand why for Israel, October 7th was a game-changing movement, a uh, game-changing day uh, for the UK or for anyone in terms of trying to justify the attacks on the Red Sea shipping in similar terms, I think is, is, is simply not comparable. Now, Rishi Sunak may have reasons to make that statement. Obviously, he's facing an election at some point this year. Um, he may be trying to show that he is able to stand up on the international stage and uh, show that Britain is still capable of playing a role. But of course, uh, we, we I think we're well aware that the US made the decision to do these strikes and the UK fell in behind. And so I think, I think Sunak is probably just engaging on domestic political uh, posturing more than anything else on this issue. Yeah, and I think that as with other positions he's taken, the electorate here will see it, as you said, as, as posturing and, and not really relevant to the many issues that uh, people are facing here in the UK. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Baker Institute's Christian Coates-Erickson. 
The Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. If you'd like to support that independent voice, why not make a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, be sure and check out the offer of a free two-month trial subscription to our reader-supported daily newsletter. The Houthis say they will not back down unless and until Israel halts its offensive, a ceasefire. Netanyahu said the offensive will continue. No one and nothing can stop it. The ultimate aim is the eradication of Hamas. Where is this all likely to end, Christian? Well, it's been more than three months already, and I think the level and scale of destruction has been far greater than I think a lot of people would have anticipated back in October. And again, that goes back to the real game-changing moment that October 7th was for, for Netanyahu, or for at least for Israel. And Netanyahu, of course, is boxed in by his own political realities. The coalition he leads uh, is not one that will want concessions. And obviously he knows that if and when the war ends, his own political future is much more perilous. So Netanyahu is boxed in. He, I think, has made it clear that he will not look with favor on any U.S. pressure to bring this to an end. And I think the Biden administration, especially in an election year, will not escalate that pressure to the point of threatening consequences to Israel, such as a withdrawal of military support. I mean, we have to think of some of the political uh, realities in uh, play in that relationship. So, I mean, it, it looks like it could easily continue and to continue to be a an incessant pounding of Gaza, to continue with the humanitarian catastrophe, and to continue to fuel this huge level of anger, not just in Yemen, but across the Arab world, including in the Gulf. I mean, levels of anger that I've seen over the last few few months have been unlike anything I've seen at least since 2003. And I think a lot of the anger is really generated by the fact that over the last two years, the US and Western governments have been making the same arguments against Russia in Ukraine and are now very obviously making very different arguments. And so I think the sense of double standard and hypocrisy is so obvious to so many people that it's really lit a fuse in terms of public and political backlash. And we see this with the with the case of the International Court of Justice, where there's a similar case involving, uh, I think, Gabon and Myanmar. And of course, we've seen Germany and other states intervene in one direction on one case and in a completely different direction in this case. And so I think that has really fueled that sense of raw anger in ways that perhaps people didn't fully anticipate. And so I think we're heading for a, an escalation, at least in terms of public anger, that won't resolve the issue one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point you make. And the global south, the Arab world, as you say, the anger at the hypocrisy. And it's so transparent. It's so clear and obvious. And of course, we have the Houthis who, you know, they're fighters. They've made clear they're not going to back down. Netanyahu is saying, I'm not backing down. The Americans, where does this leave the Biden administration? Because, you know, the Houthis keep hitting shipping in the Red Sea. At what point does Biden have his red line moment? Well, I think the Biden administration is in trouble, partly because 
I mean, it came into office in its first year. We had the chaotic withdrawal from Kabul in Afghanistan in August 2021. And that was the, that was the moment when Biden's approval ratings went from plus 10 to minus 10 in the space of a month. And they've simply never recovered because we saw that very visible day after day on our television screens and in our newspapers online. We saw the limitations of U.S. power. And I think we're seeing the same thing day after day again now. And so he's had these two foreign policy missteps. And it's often a truism that foreign policy doesn't decide elections. But but these are playing out so visibly that I think they have certainly had an effect. And, and the Afghanistan debacle did have an effect. We saw that in the in the approval ratings, which, which really flipped. Biden will run on the fact that he has improved the economy, and he has. And a lot of the a lot of the, the, the very technocratic language in a lot of the uh, measures that the administration has pushed through are simply not getting through to people. And I think the concern for the Biden administration is that if there's a continuing threat to shipping in the Red Sea, and we see now uh, supply chains being disrupted and shipping rerouted across uh, around the Horn of Africa, uh, we've already seen one supply shock arising from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We have now a second supply shock. Uh, if that begins to feed into higher inflation, uh, some more problems with uh, uh, sort of supply chains across the world, now that could put in peril Biden's economic message too. And to say nothing, of course, of the the levels of anger among Arab American communities, which are also heavily prominent in some of the more important swing states in the Midwest, which will decide the outcome of the 2024 election. Uh, we don't forget that there were six or seven states with a fewer than 100,000 votes between them that, had they gone the other way, would have decided the 2020 election too. Mm, yeah, and indeed, Michigan comes to mind, doesn't it, where you've got a very large uh, Arab American population. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Trump won that, or rather Biden won it by 2.5. So that, 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 as you say, these swing states could go uh, towards uh, Trump simply by Arab Americans sitting on their hands and not going out to vote. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, but, but I wanted to come back to Iran. And I agree with you that it's not the puppet master that, uh, you know, Washington and London w would like to claim it is, but they are playing a role. And are they not proving once again to be very adept at the art of asymmetric warfare? Are they not coming out as winners once again in this in, in this current situation? I mean, they are in a way, in the sense that clearly groups aligned with Iran are now the ones that are seen to be leading the resistance to Israel. And just as we saw in 2006 with the Lebanon war, where that resulted for at least temporarily in a huge spike in Hezbollah's popularity because they were the ones to be seen to be taking the fight back to Israel. We're now seeing obviously Hamas and the Houthis now doing so. And we've seen, I think there was a Washington Institute poll that found that Saudi views of Hamas had increased markedly since October. So certainly some of the Iranian linked groups are making making the running. They're, they're the ones making the political weather. And that certainly, I think, is something that is in Iran's favor. Uh, I mean, the Houthis, for, for very low investment in Iranian support, the Houthis have certainly tied down the Saudis for, for a long time and uh, are now obviously making Iran's point perhaps for it, even if perhaps inadvertently. Now, Iran 
I think, doesn't want this to escalate. I don't think the Saudis want it to either. And I think the Houthis have been very careful. They haven't been firing missiles into Saudi cities or onto Saudi airports, as they were doing up until 2022. So they've made it very clear that this is not an escalation or re-escalation of the war in Yemen, which has involved Saudi Arabia over the last nine years. So this, again, is a very calculated move linked to Gaza with no political appetite in Riyadh or in Tehran for this to become an issue in Saudi-Iranian or in Houthi Gulf relations. And so I think that at least is something that we can hopefully uh, build upon to ensure that we don't see an escalation or regionalization of this conflict. Well, now you've mentioned the Saudis a couple of times. Let's pick up on that. As you say, they're in a vulnerable position. But bearing in mind that Mohammed bin Salman remains keen to normalize with Israel, is there influence that Riyadh can bring to bear that would lead to a meaningful de-escalation that could lead potentially to a ceasefire? Is there is there some clout that Riyadh has that it perhaps previously did not have? Well, I mean, obviously, we obviously saw Mohammed bin Salman giving his uh, interview to Fox News, I think, on the 21st of September, so less than three weeks before the 7th of October, where he said every day we get closer to an agreement that he said would be the biggest agreement in world politics since the end of the Cold War. And the Saudis haven't formally abandoned the negotiations with Israel. They've paused them. And we also see suggestions that some in the White House, notably Brett McGurk, remain very keen to, uh, to, uh, to put the issue of normalization back on the table. Uh, the Saudis have made it very clear they don't want this to escalate with Iran or with the Houthis. Uh, in my mind, maybe the, like, the way the Saudis could leverage this would be to say to the U.S. and potentially through the U.S. to Israel, that if you still want normalization to proceed, A, B, and C have to happen, and there will have to be a much more direct role of the Palestinians in in those negotiations. It did feel, from reading about the uh, Saudi-U.S.-Israel dialogue, that the Palestinians were almost an afterthought, that they were absent, they were, that their future was being decided, but they were not at the table. And that, I suspect, will have to change. And so if the Saudis do say to the Americans, perhaps to the Israelis, if you really want normalization to happen, we have to do it this way, that is perhaps a way that they could leverage. That would also play into Mohammed bin Salman's um, attempts to reinvent himself as a statesman, uh, as a figure of regional and international importance. I mean, if he can be the one that put Palestinian statehood back on the table, the sort of 2020s equivalent of the 2002 Arab peace plan, then I think that would be something that he would be very interested in. But of course, we're not at that point yet. Israel is not at that point yet. The U.S. government, or at least people in the U.S. government, might be, but again, as we've seen, the uh, I think what, what until the Israelis are at that point, we're probably not going to see any leverage in that direction. But that could be something further down the line to pay attention to. Well, so what are the ABCs then that uh, you think the Saudis would have uh, the uh, the 2002 uh, peace deal? Is that basically it? Well, I mean that has all 
historically been the Saudi point of departure, and they may insist on ironclad guarantees for some form of Palestinian statehood for economic recovery, obviously, for Palestinian opportunities uh, to, to sort of work. And so I think there'd have to be a much more of a Palestinian dimension to whatever plan or normalization is agreed upon, uh, other than, I mean, as opposed to the the Abraham Accords in 2020, which really didn't have the Palestinians in them at all. So concrete, specific measures to improve the condition of the Palestinian people, and not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, and to finally make a two-state solution, or at least some form of Palestinian statehood, in whatever form it takes, a political reality. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm having difficulty thinking that Mohammed bin Salman would push as hard as to say, right, the settlements have to be uh, removed from the West Bank. East Jerusalem has to be the capital mm. of a Palestinian state, a Palestinian state that's free and independent, that is, has its own security services. Um, I just don't see Mohammed bin Salman pushing that hard. Maybe I'm being a, a bit cynical. What, what do you think? No, I think it'd be, I mean, it's a stretch, absolutely. But I think if that's the way they would try to exert leverage at some point, then I can see them at least trying to. And of course, then if the Israelis then rebuff that, then uh, the ball's back in their court. But I mean, if, if at some point they want to at least be the ones that put the issue of the Palestinian statehood back on the table, I think they would probably do so. Uh, that may or may not lead anywhere. And as I think probably my guess is that, like you, it's unlikely to lead anywhere given the current political situation in, in Israel. But uh, it would certainly perhaps improve Mohammed bin Salman's standing uh, across the region. So, I mean, that might be something they would try. Mm, interesting. Yeah, as you say, that would definitely uh, improve his standing and, and would uh, bring him... Uh perhaps head and shoulders above Mohammed bin Zayed, with whom he has a certain degree of political and uh, economic competition going on. Just just finally, um, while I've got you, Christian, Donald Trump, he's come out of the Iowa primary as, as predicted by the polls with a, a smashing victory. If Trump returns to the White House, what do you think happens in the Red Sea, in the Gaza situation with Iran? Well, yeah, still, I mean, 10 months away from the election and 12 months away from Trump potentially returning to office. So if the Gaza war is still going on by November 2024, January 2025, I I think it would be in a very difficult situation. But of course, uh, someone like Netanyahu or the Saudis or others might be waiting for Trump because they remember the transactional style of policy making the first time around. But again, if the conflict is still ongoing 10 or 12 months from now, I just think we'll be in such a different place. And it would be so much more damaging, I think. But certainly waiting for Trump for for normalization, for example, between Saudi Arabia and Israel, it's hard to see why the Saudis would do anything that would give Biden this colossal foreign policy win. Um, I do think certainly with normalization, if it happens, it will. Then the Saudis will wait until uh, Trump or whoever it is next returns in, to office in 2025 and certainly won't happen this year, which is why I think I'm so confused by the emphasis being placed by the current 
White House, the Biden White House, because I just don't see it happening, at least this year. Mm, okay. Well, we should we shall wait and see. There's a lot to, a lot of laundry hanging out there blowing <laughs> in the wind. Yes. Christian, thanks, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Baker Institute's Christian Coates Ulrichsen. His latest book, published this past December by Hearst, is Centers of Power in the Arab Gulf States. I recommend it highly. You'll have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of Middle East and North Africa analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Christian. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and search our library of over 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights, insights you simply will not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of The Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. (music) 